Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Robert Black, but you can call me The Professor. I'm known around this city for my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, two recently completed podcasts, Michael Myers Minute and Dave Made a Minute, and the audacity to take on The Room Minute next. Other cities have histories, John Bunton writes, and L.A. Noir, the struggle for the soul of America's most seductive city. Los Angeles has legends. He continues, quote, Advertised to the world as the Eden at the end of the western frontier, the settlement that Spaniards named El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles turned out to be something very different. Not the beatific Our Lady of the Queen of the Angels, advertised by its name, but rather a dark, dangerous blonde. End quote. Richard Rayner, Los Angeles Times, quote, Norris history usually gets shorthanded something like this. The American hard-boiled idiom born in the late 1920s merged with the shadowy motifs of German expressionism, Brought here by immigrant filmmakers escaping the desperate terminus of pre-World War II Europe and a style was born. Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, 1941, gave an early taste, with its dizzying angles and stark chiaroscuros, and a narrative structured like a hall of mirrors, like a labyrinth. Noir really took hold a couple of years later, when Raymond Chandler was called to a Paramount office to meet Billy Wilder, a German refugee screenwriter who was just starting to direct. Together they created the script for Double Indemnity, from James M. Kane's Ropey Novella. Barbara Stanwyck wore an anklet and a tight angora sweater, and her eyes flashed like cruel diamonds in the back of a car, while Fred McMurray throttled her husband to death. An amazing scene, charged with the dark sensuality that still shocks. The amiable McMurray, as insurance salesman Walter Neff, was a prototype of the noir hero. Doomed, trapped by a vicious woman, he buzzed, not too unhappily, in a web of his and her making. He narrated his story as if he were already dead. Watching the movie, we know that he soon will be. Maybe the point is that this is what he wants. End quote. As minute 28 begins, we're interior, apartment, night. Ed holds a big chin statue of Elvis Presley in his hand. In this particular shot, Jeff Goldblum sort of looks like the Elvis painting hanging to the left. He should maybe have already turned tail and run, but he asks, perhaps hoping for the negative answer. Is this your apartment? This is an L.A. movie. Elvis Presley is plastered all over this apartment. We don't know why. Ed doesn't know why. And Los Angeles wasn't, of course, Elvis's town. He started his career in Memphis and aged his way into Vegas. Somewhere in the middle, of course, he did come to Hollywood. Made movies here and in Hawaii. But he did live in L.A. at least some of the time. The Beverly Hills mansion where he lived with Priscilla from 1967 to 1973 was recently on the market again. As of 2017, you can actually rent the place at about $4,000 a night, with a five-night minimum. He made 27 films, and while most weren't great, all were profitable. Of Elvis's 1968 so-called comeback special filmed in Burbank, which is just north of Los Angeles proper for those of you who don't know this place, John Lando of iMagazine said, quote, 
There is something magical about watching a man who has lost himself find his way back home again, end quote. Which that isn't why Elvis is in this film. But that line sounds apropos to Ed in this film. Essentially sleepwalking his way through life and right into this film noir plot. Ed isn't your usual film noir hero. Not exactly. He's no detective. He's no cop. He works in aerospace engineering. Similarly, Elvis really isn't your usual Los Angeles icon. He's something else. As Diana emerges from the bedroom, we can see the fun in Acapulco poster again. And to the right, we can see a poster for 1966's Paradise, Hawaiian style. On the headboard of the bed, two framed black and white 8x10s of Elvis. Hanging over the bed, that same cloth poster of Elvis from his Aloha from Hawaii performance that was hanging by the front door. Possibly reused set decoration, as I already mentioned about a couple posters last minute. Or maybe whoever does live in this apartment just really loves a few key posters, and they are worth hanging twice. That Aloha from Hawaii performance, by the way, was the first concert by a solo artist to be broadcast around the world. Before we get to Diana, we're not in Acapulco. We're not in Hawaii. Certainly not in Vegas or Memphis. We're in Los Angeles. John Bunton explains in L.A. Noir, quote, Before it was a city, Los Angeles was an idea. Other cities were based on geographical virtues, a splendid port, San Francisco, say, or New York, an important river, St. Louis, a magnificent lake, Chicago. But nothing about the arid basin of Los Angeles other than its mild weather suggested the site of a great metropolis. So the men who built Los Angeles decided to advertise a different kind of virtue, moral and racial purity. Los Angeles, a settlement founded in 1781 as the Spanish Pueblo, was re-envisioned as the white spot of America, a place where native-born, White Protestants could enjoy the magic of outdoors inviting always trees and blossom throughout the year, flowers and blossom all the time, as well as mystery, romance, charm, splendor, all safe among others of their kind. It was an image relentlessly promoted by men like Harry Chandler, owner and publisher of the Los Angeles Times, and one of Southern California's most important real estate developers, and it worked. By 1920, Los Angeles had surpassed San Francisco to become the largest city in the West. There was just one problem with this picture of Anglo-Saxon virtue. It wasn't true. Far from being a paragon of virtue, by the early 1920s, Los Angeles had become a Shangri-La of vice, end quote. A multiracial Shangri-La of vice, I would add. Archie Loss suggests, in Pop Dreams, Music, Movies, and the Media in the 1960s, that, quote, Elvis's performing manner, spontaneous, flamboyant, frankly sensual, was easily as important to American music as his singing. It served to liberate white performers from their cultural straitjacket. It also made it possible for more black musicians to be accepted on their own terms by the way it popularized their moves and their music for a wider audience, end quote. Their moves and their music. Loss goes on to offer an example of how covers like Elvis's music not only fed the growing taste for rock, but also eventually led listeners back to the originals. I'm inclined to a contradiction from a class on the history of popular culture in 20th century America, but that sort of tangent could take a long time. And this is not a film about Elvis. He is just making a strange and memorable appearance. Elvis, however right or wrong, was an amalgam of styles that came before. Los Angeles, similarly, is an amalgam of styles and peoples that came before, and barely yearning for a collective identity. Los Angeles was, and is, a place where everyone is welcome, but maybe no one really belongs. Diana explains, this is her brother's place. She's staying here temporarily. Reverse shot on Ed and we see more posters. A different poster for Girl Happy. A poster for 1960s G.I. Blues. 
A poster for 1966 is Frankie and Johnny. A poster for 1964 is Kissing Cousins. A poster for 1963's It Happened at the World's Fair. And a lamp that the figure looks more like a woman or a matador than Elvis, but I think it's supposed to be Elvis. There's an Elvis glass on the coffee table and an old typewriter next to an ashtray on the desk. A record player. And more than one shelf of vinyl records. Reviewing Jesse Shapiro's film Nobody Walks in L.A. for the Huffington Post, Marina Dewey writes, quote, Los Angeles is as vast as it is intimate. A conglomeration of various cultures, communities, lifestyles, and ethnicities that are spread across 503 square miles. While a small percentage of the city of Angels is what is represented in reality television and shows like Entourage, there is an underbelly that vibrates beneath the surface of popular culture's image of Hollywood glamour. It's artsy and grimy. It's beautiful and grotesque. It's inspiring and discouraging. It's everything we expect and everything we don't. And it's better seen from the sidewalk than from the inside of your car. The only way to find this underbelly is to live here. To explore streets that are seemingly forgotten but teeming with life. There is a community for everyone in L.A. You just have to have the guts to look for it. End quote. Diana continues. Did you check the refrigerator? This isn't her place. But she feels right at home here. Like many a transplant who moves from somewhere else to L.A., really. Whether you're somebody like Elvis or nobody. Me? I was born here. Second 12, medium shot, Ed. No, 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 I, uh... He puts down the Elvis statue. I've got to be shoving off. Second 16, we're on Diana. Medium shot. No, wait, please. I really don't want to be alone. Immediate reverse shot, close on Ed, because how can he leave when she doesn't want to be alone? And Los Angeles can be such a lonely city. Such a sordid and scary city. Back to Richard Rayner, Los Angeles Times, quote. Los Angeles in the 20s was awash with newsprint and stories, unbelievable, amazing stories. People wanted the glitz, the glamour of this new and exciting place, but they wanted the dark side, too. Oranges on the trees and evil in the atmosphere. Darkness even, or especially, at noon. A sense of ennui, of disillusion, alienation, and panic. Even while times were supposedly buoyant, noir, in other words, before the term noir came into being. End quote. Second 24, we're back on Diana. Let me make a call. Get myself organized, okay? Quick reversed Ed, he smiles like he's merely humoring her for now. But he can only put up with so much. But he nods, says okay. Reverse shot, Diana, and now she's in a close shot, too. The connection may be tentative, but the film is making sure we notice it. Diana, thanks. She heads back into the bedroom, and second 31, we're on Ed. Back to the medium shot. Cut to. Diana entering a bathroom. We will only be able to tell later that it is off to the right somewhere in the bedroom. We are close behind her, but she is also framed in the bathroom mirror in a medium shot. She turns on the light and approaches her reflection. Reflected in the mirror, we can see a poster of Elvis's face on the bathroom door. And on the far bedroom wall, a poster for 1967's Double Trouble, above the same poster for Girl Happy that is behind the shelves in the living room. And there are more Elvis trading cards on the wall in the bathroom. Diana sets down her purse, turns on the water, and closes the door. Elvis's face comes at us. Second 40, we're back on Ed. He crosses the living room, and something odd among the Elvises becomes evident. That initial cloth poster of Elvis from his Aloha from Hawaii broadcast, hanging near the front door, has two poster book-sized posters that seem to not only be from the same performance, but seem to match one another, and they hang on either side of the larger cloth version. Ed sits down at a chair that, at this angle, feels like it's in the middle of the room, but he sits at the counter near the kitchen next to one of the Elvis statues we saw earlier, and a paperback book that wasn't identifiable before. It is Steve Dunleavy's Elvis, What Happened? This book, 
which delved into Elvis's personal life and his drug problems, based on the accounts of three former bodyguards, was published just two weeks before Elvis' death in 1977. In The Dark Side of the Dream, the image of Los Angeles in film noir, Tina Olsen-Lent explains, quote, The popular image of Los Angeles in the 1920s was that of the Promised Land. In its warmth and beauty, one could escape from the hierarchies and constraints of the East to find freedom and regeneration. The image of Los Angeles by the 1950s was, in contrast, that of the Wasteland. In the cold, hard city, one was overwhelmed by emptiness, desolation, and despair. This radical change in the popular perception of the City of Angels was part of a general, multi-leveled re-evaluation of the process of urbanization and its effects on American society. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, writers, artists, sociologists, and social critics began to question and critique the prevailing optimistic view of urbanization, and for many of them, Los Angeles, the most modern metropolis, became a model and test case. The film industry, traditionally lagging behind cultural developments in the arts and social thought, began to reflect this developing urban critique in the movies of the film noir cycle of the mid-1940s. By giving these ideas a visual form that was seen by a mass audience, the film industry affected the popular perception of urban life in general and in particular tarnished the golden image of Los Angeles it had helped to create by depicting the dark side of that dream. Contradictory images of the city pervaded American thought in the 19th and 20th centuries. Divergent views depicted the city as a place of great evil, as a place of great freedom and opportunity, and as a place where the price of social mobility was demoralization in an impersonal environment. The urban optimism that accompanied the booming economy and the exciting modernity of the 1920s shifted late in the decade to a mood of urban pessimism that continued through the Depression. In the literature and art of the late 1920s and 1930s, the earlier critique of small towns and rural life gave way to a veneration of them as the backbone of American spiritual strength, while the cities became symbols of internationalism, predatory capitalism, industrialism, and dehumanization, characteristics that were the antithesis of traditional American values. Writers and artists in the 1930s frequently depicted the city as a dangerous place that threatened the existence of individuals by subverting their moral values through a loss of integration with the community. End quote. We're still just talking Los Angeles before World War II, but you can already see the Los Angeles that exists in every film noir set in the city, into the 80s, and since. This film's plot has rampant wreckage and murder over four emeralds. And that plot comes from outside the city, but of course it comes here. Los Angeles is where dreams go to die, but also where everything is possible. You can smuggle emeralds and hope not to be caught by the Iranian secret police. You can stay in your Elvis impersonator brother's apartment and casually undress, and the guy you just invited in will hardly bat an eye, but I get ahead of myself. Minute 28 winds down finally as Ed sits for a moment before second 50, pushing aside the Elvis book to open the portfolio beneath it. Modeling photos and Polaroids of Diana. Of Michelle Pfeiffer, really. And I go searching for these specific photos on Google because that's what I do. That's the brand you get when you bring a professor into your podcast. But there are a lot of photos of Michelle Pfeiffer out there. A lot of old modeling photos. Even numerous Polaroids. None of which were the two we see here. Michelle and another woman all in white. And the other might be two people making out on a couch in a 60s, 70s-style wood-paneled room. There's a small photo of Pfeiffer in a graduation gown, a black-and-white headshot that looks professional. And then there's the apparently fake magazine cover, On the Scene Magazine, with Pfeiffer's face, or Diana's face in context, large over the whole cover. She wears a baby blue turtleneck and a blue and white ski cap. And the text at the bottom of the cover isn't entirely readable on my copy of the film, but it says something about a bus stop, and something about the route to imperfect memory, and several things all in the same font fit almost neatly beneath Pfeiffer's slash Diana's chin, 
and I'm drawn into my head by the magazine cover because I worked for a magazine once, and when I was learning the layout software, the first thing I ever made was a fake article about Elvis Presley, with the famous shot of Elvis in his gold suit down the side of one page. I still have that article in a box in a closet. I'm tempted to dig it out and see from what article we stole the text. But sometimes the distraction has so little to do with the film in question, a tangent upon a tangent upon a tangent, it will drive you too far off the path. The penultimate note from Minute 28, the Elvis mug on the counter is just one of a set. The rest hang on a rack to the right of Diane's portfolio on the inserted shots. Second 59, angle on Ed, as he looks up from the photos, and his reaction can best be described as perplexed, and the minute ends. That is all for Minute 28. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Once again, I'm Robert Black. Some folk call me the Professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I've been up to, including my latest podcast, The Room Minute. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at nightminute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.